Evening, everybody. Welcome to uh, our evening service. It's great to be able to gather together again, uh, to sit under the Lord's word, uh, to sing and to worship together, uh, and to be church family together. It is a glorious privilege to be able uh, to do that. I'm going to hand over to Jess, who will lead us through the first part of the service. Thank you, Simon. Good evening, everybody. Um, let's start this evening by looking at a psalm, just as we focus our minds on why we've all come out this evening, why we've gathered with our brothers and sisters. It's because we love the Lord and we want to worship him. And this is a psalm that just reminds us that the Lord is just better than anything else, anyone else in the world. And I need to be reminded of that in my heart, and I'm sure that you do too. And this is what it says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Can everybody find 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 31? Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. His mother's name was Hamutal, daughter of Jeremiah. She was from Libna. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his predecessors had done. Pharaoh Necho put him in chains at Riblah in the land of Hamath so that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on Judah a levy of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, son of Josiah, king in place of his father Josiah and changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz and carried him off to Egypt and there he died. Jehoiakim paid Pharaoh Necho the silver and gold he demanded. In order to do so, he taxed the land and exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land according to their assessments. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. His mother's name was Zebedah, daughter of Padiah. She was from Ramah. And he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his predecessors had done. During Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land. And Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. But then he turned against Nebuchadnezzar and rebelled. The Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, Moabite and Ammonite raiders against him to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord was not willing to forgive. 
As for the other events of Jehoiakim's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Jehoiakim rested with his ancestors, and Jehoiachin, his son, succeeded him as king. The king of Egypt did not march out from his own country again, because the king of Babylon had taken all his territory from the Wadi of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, daughter of El Nathan. She was from Jerusalem. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father had done. And now Nathan's going to come and preach for us. Thank you. I think you deserve a medal for all those difficult <laughs> names. Glad you read, and I didn't have to. <laughs> That's great. It's great to be with you all this evening. Thanks for coming out on a sunny Sunday afternoon. So it's great to be here. Now, probably most of us in the room have either experienced or witnessed with your own children what I'm about to describe. So maybe it even happened this afternoon. So sometimes you cut yourself on your arm or your leg, and then the only way to stop the bleeding is to slap a plaster on the affected area. Anybody ever had that happen to them? Yeah. And then a few days later, you're faced with the dilemma. How are you going to remove the plaster? So if you and this is particularly difficult if you've got hairy arms or hairy legs like I have. And so you've got this cut on your arm and you've got this plaster on your arm and you're kind of like, OK, do you go like little by little? And then every single hair that is attached to the plaster, you rip out and you feel the pain of it. Or do you just go in one ah moment and get it over and done with? Okay, so let's have a show of hands. Who, who, okay, first of all, am I the only person that this has happened to? Okay, good. Second of all, which option would you take? Who's for the slow and painful agony? Okay. May, okay, who's for the get it over and done with in, in, yeah, okay. So, all right, that's good. So we're in the book of Second Kings. You're in the book of Second Kings, which uh, is wonderful. Now, it's, Second Kings, probably you all know this, so I'm just teaching my grandmother to suck eggs. Uh, second Kings is the second volume, second book of a two-volume work, First and Second Kings, which is in the Old Testament, and it's the historical narrative of, uh, of the kings of Israel and Judah over basically a 400-year period, and we're right near the end. And First Kings begins with Solomon, Second Kings ends with a bunch of Jehoiachins, uh, and Jehoiakims and Jehoiahazes, uh, and it's basically the two-volume series is a journey from the wisdom of Solomon to the folly of Jehoiachin, unfortunately. We Solomon starts out as a good king who's following the Lord, and he shows mighty wisdom, but then his downfall that he experiences at the hands of his 700 wives and concubines is repeated over and over. I'm not saying that his 700 wives were responsible, <laughs> but maybe they were. Well, in fact, they were, weren't they, as they led his heart to worship other gods. But then his downfall is repeated again and again and again by his sons and his grandsons and his great-grandsons and his descendants. And the author of Kings has this kind of reporter's eye for significant details, and he has a storyteller's flair for the dramatic, and he has a pastor's heart to help teach people the difference between right and wrong. And so he shows the tragic decline of a once great nation of Israel into ruin. Now, what Jess just read for us falls at the end, pretty much at the end of the second book. And it comes off the back of, I presume, what Neil preached last week, which was the story of Josiah. 
Now, Josiah was a godly king, and he arrives on the scene uh, after two generations of rampant wickedness in Israel, okay? And he leads the nation in humility and repentance and brings about lots and lots of reforms after they rediscover the book of the law of the Lord, which probably is Deuteronomy. That was in chapter 22, verse 8. And then, so Josiah leads the nation in the renewal of the covenant and the removal of the worship of false gods and the revival of a Passover. And so Josiah is like that plaster that you slap on an affected area that's bleeding. Okay, so Josiah is like that plaster. The author slapped him on, stopped the bleeding, and now he's faced with this dilemma. Is he going to drag the story out or is he going to rip it off in one easy go? And so whereas in chapter 22, basically the story of Josiah, uh, and I forget how many verses it is, but it basically covers a 31-year period. Now the next 15 verses that Jess read for us cover a 12-year period, three kings, and basically the author's message is, as he rips the plaster off, is Judah is toast. This is the end of the nation. And a cloud of inevitable doom and gloom kind of rests over the whole passage. And what we see in verse 31, if you look there, if you've still got your Bibles open, keep them open if you can. But in verse 31, everything kind of seems normal in Judah following Josiah's death. His son succeeds him as king, and the Davidic line, the line of David, continues. But we're told Jehoiahaz does not act like his godly father, Josiah, but instead he does evil, the same evil as his evil ancestors do. And I reckon that he must have done some pretty bad evil things to have that legacy when you are only king for three months. It must have been pretty bad. And so we read on in the story that this evil king, Jehoiahaz, is invited to a leadership summit with Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, and Necho decides, I don't like you. You're not going to be king of Judah. I'm going to get rid of you. In fact, I'm going to imprison you. Then I'm going to impose a big tax on the land of Judah, and they're going to make me wealthy. And I'm going to make your brother, Jehoiakim, my puppet king in your place. So Jehoiahaz ends up in prison. And then we find out later in the end of verse 34 that he dies. And Jehoiakim becomes king. But verse 37, we're told that he is not a better king either. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, just as his predecessors had done. And then Jehoiakim, he faces the might of a, of a different king. So having been made king by uh, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar arrives on the scene with his mighty Babylonian army who are pumped because they're fresh off of a victory against the Assyrians. And so he comes south and he's looking to kind of cruise through Israel and Judah on his way to destroy Egypt. And so he wants to, so Nebuchadnezzar wants to become the number one superpower in the world. And so he turns his attention and his weapons on Egypt. And we find that Jehoiakim is like piggy in the middle. So he starts out in the pocket of Pharaoh Necho, and then he quickly switches allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. But then after three years of being Nebuchadnezzar's puppet, he decides he's had enough and he tries to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, but nobody comes to his aid. None of the surrounding nations come and help him. He's got no allies, no allegiances. Even the Lord leaves him hanging. And so he is uh, basically, he, he's the kind of doorway to destruction for Judah as he 
has no allies or friends. And so we read, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in, let's see, verse 2 of chapter 24, that the Babylonians, then the Aramaeans, then the Moabites, then the Ammonites all send their armies in, and the result is they destroy Judah little by little. Little by little. But that's not the end of Jehoiakim. He then dies, and his son, Jehoiachin, becomes king, and he does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord, as his ancestors did. Chapter 24, verse 9. And he must have been pretty bad because, again, he was only king for three months, and his legacy is he did what was evil. So we've got just evil king after evil king after evil king doing their own thing, forsaking the Lord, trying to stand on their own two feet in front of Necho and Nebuchadnezzar, and ultimately failing and so the the so the the author of kings he rips the plaster off he basically says this is a sorry state of affairs it's a 12 year period well 11 and a half year period we've got three kings and they're all pretty evil and judah is toast and then that's all i got asked to preach on so good night god bless you <laughs> there we go that's pretty miserable, isn't it, really? No wonder Neil went on holiday. You know, I could imagine him and Simon scheming in the week going, right, do you know what? They're, I'm going to preach Josiah, the glory of Second Kings. So, you know, I'm going to preach Josiah. And then we'll invite Nathan in to preach about the miserable kings where there's no hope in the passage. And we'll just watch him crash and burn. I bet they're just like, like if this was being streamed, I bet Neil's watching with popcorn somewhere. Like, I bet he's doing a dreadful job. So... There's, there's nothing about these three kings that impresses the author. There's, there's, there's no trembling faith of Hezekiah. There's no kind of enthusiastic obedience of Josiah. There's nothing about these guys except for failure and unfaithfulness. And yet, it's not just a retelling of history, is it? There's something in this passage. There's got to be something in this passage for us this evening. or Otherwise, Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, where all scripture is God-breathed and useful to us, aren't true. So will you mind with me the things that I think are here? Because there has to be something. Because we can't simply just go away this evening informed of the miserable historical plight of Judah in the 6th century. Oh, yeah, that was great. We're a little bit more aware that the kings were evil and i think there is more for us because the the author of kings is not just a historian he's a theologian and so he's going to interpret history for us with his theological glasses on and there's three things in true preacher style three things always three things three things that i think we can take away this evening if we look closely enough and they're these three things number one god is in control of all things Number two, God is faithful to all of his promises. And number three, God is always gracious to his people. So let's begin with the first one. God is in control of all things. As we read through this passage, you'll notice there's five kings who are mentioned in this passage. Five kings. So we, we've already covered the three evil kings of Judah, Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. And then there's Necho and Nezer or Nebuchadnezzar. And Necho and Nebuchadnezzar seem to be uh, the main characters in this story. They, and they seem to be able to do whatever they like. So look at verse 34 and 35 with me again. It's, it's Pharaoh Necho who 
decides who will be Judah's king. He says to Jehoiaz, I don't like you. You're going to jail. I'm going to tax the land, make myself wealthy off of your back. And then I'm going to put your brother in charge and he's going to be king instead of you. And Jehoiakim, don't think you're going to get off uh, easy because I'm going to, you're actually called Elakim and I'm going to change your name. Uh, and that's an important part that we could just brush over because in the ancient Near East, to name something showed that you owned it. That you, it was kind of like the prerogative of the owner to name something. A little bit like parents are able to name their children today. You decide what your what that person's name is, and that kind of is an indication that you own them, or that you are have authority over them, or that you are responsible for them. And so, uh, Pharaoh Necho is not just kind of like, oh, I don't like your name. I'm just going to change your name. He's doing something in that moment to say, I'm the king of this king. I'm the king of this king. And he was kind of demonstrating to everybody that he controlled Judah. He says, I'm Pharaoh, and I'm a great king over lesser kings. Like this Eliakim, oh, Jehoiakim. <laughs> and actually, the name change is also significant because the, the name Eliakim means God established. But he changes his name to Jehoiakim, which means Yahweh has established. And I think what the, the author is getting at here is he's, he's basically saying, if you can imagine it, here's, here's Pharaoh Necho sitting on his throne and there's this, this Elikim stood before him and he says, ha, oh, your name is God has established. Oh, but he hasn't, has he? In fact, I'm going to change your name to Jehoiakim. Yahweh has established you as king, but he didn't, did he? I made you king. You shouldn't even be king. Your brother was the king, and his son should be the king, but I've made you king instead. And so there's a kind of a mocking tone to Pharaoh Necho's name change as well. It's kind of his idea of irony and blasphemy as he changes his name. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes along, and he invades Judah, and Jehoiakim is a spineless puppet king, and he capitulates to him, and Nebuchadnezzar plunders the wealth of the land for himself, and then we're told at the end of verse 7 of chapter 24 that he conquers all of Pharaoh Necho's territories, and he, from the Wadi of Egypt, which is basically the very southern end of the Egyptian kingdom, right up to the Euphrates, which was the northern part of Babylon, and so this was just like an indication of how mighty and how powerful Babylon was at the time. They, that Nebuchadnezzar basically swept through the entire known world and declared himself to be king. And Judah looks like this little pawn on a political chessboard between these two great superpowers. And Egypt does it and conquers. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes down and he pushes them back and he conquers and yet squeezed in between these two superpowers that are vying for power, we read verses 2 and 3 of chapter 24. It was the Lord who sent Babylonian and Aramean and Moabite and Ammonite raiders against him to destroy Judah. And he did this in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets, that would have been Isaiah, Micah, Habakkuk. Surely, verse 3, surely these things happen to Judah according to the Lord's 
commands. So three times in two verses, we're told the Lord did this. It's done according to the word of the Lord. It was all done surely according to the commands of the Lord. And I think the author wants to get home to us that although history may record the actions of human kings, underpinning everything that is happening, underpinning everything that is occurring then and now is the sovereign providential control of the true king of kings. That's what he's getting at, that God is in control of all things, that the God that we worship is the Lord over all nations, over all tribes, over all peoples, as north as you can go, as south as you can go, and everything in between. That he's the king over powerful kings like Necho and Nebuchadnezzar, and he's the king over puppet kings like Jehoiakim. That he's the king over the past, the present, and the future, and that he is carrying out his purposes according to his plans, and every human being is just an actor on his stage at his command and directing. That's good news in the midst of misery, isn't it, for us? Remember Proverbs 21, verse 1? Maybe you don't. Proverbs 21, verse 1 says this, the king's heart is a stream in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And that's true of whether it was David or Solomon or Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Nebuchadnezzar, Necho, Queen Elizabeth II, Charles, William, George, whoever else. Our heavenly king is the king of kings. Even over the seemingly most powerful kings of the day. And he's in control of all things. And as Romans reminds us, he's working all things, both the good and the bad, together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So God is in control of all things. That's the first good, good thing we see in this miserable passage. Second thing is this. We see God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his promises with the lives and the legacies of these three kings and actually the fourth king uh, Zedekiah who I presume you'll meet next week or maybe the week after uh, Judah was was toast as we've already said they were past hope they their history was doomed but notice what the again coming back to those verses two to four in chapter 24 it was a it was a faithful doom if you like because it was a it was a fulfillment of God's plan and God's word and God's promises. You see, in Brit as difficult as it might be to comprehend at the moment, in bringing an end to Judah, God was being faithful to his promises. Now, you and I, we love the promises of God, don't we? We love singing about them. We love, we love reminding one another of the promises of God, you know, how much he loves us, how much he's promised to be with us, how he'll never forsake us or leave us, all wonderfully good truths to cling on to at all times, and especially in times of hardship. But there's also some promises that don't turn up on a coffee cup or on a, you know, verse of the day toilet paper or whatever you might have in your house. Now, remember the context. So in chapter 22, they had discovered the book of the law of the Lord, which probably was Deuteronomy, okay? And Deuteronomy is, you don't have to turn there, but I'll, I'll just point out, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, at the end of that book, there is a whole chapter, right, or pretty much a whole chapter, 
on the blessings for obedience, the promises of God for the people's obedience. So Moses writes this, if you fulfill, uh, sorry, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow his commandments that I give you today, the Lord God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord. And then he recites the, the blessings. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land, the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks, your baskets and your kneading trough will be blessed. And you will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. And the Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. And they will come at you from one direction, but will flee from you in seven. And you get this whole like 15, 20 verses, I don't know how many it is, of blessings that come from God, promises of God to do good to his people. But either side of that chapter, chapter 27, and then further on into chapter 28, there's those promises that we don't re read in our quiet times. Things like this. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, be silent, Israel, and listen, you have now become the people of the Lord God. Obey the Lord your God and follow his commands and decrees that I give you today. Uh, and then he goes on to call the people to attention. And he says, the, the Levites shall recite to all the people of Israel in a loud voice. Here, Cursed is anyone who makes an idol, a thing detestable to the Lord. Cursed is anyone who dishonors their father or mother. Cursed is anyone who moves their neighbor's boundary stone. Cursed is anyone who leads the blind astray on the road. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. And then in chapter 28, you read these kind of words from verse 15. If you don't obey the Lord and you don't carefully follow his commands and decrees that I'm giving you today, all of these curses will come upon you. You'll be cursed in the country and in the city. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. The crops of your land will be cursed. The calves of your herd, the lambs of your flock, you will be cursed when you come in and when you go out. And then if you fast forward to the end of chapter 28, verse 36 and 37, here's a promise. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors. And there you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, and you will become a thing of horror, a byword and an object of ridicule among all the peoples where the Lord will drive you. And so what we find at the end of Second Kings, as Judah has gone through this downward spiral of decline, is God just being true to his word. God is being faithful to all of his promises. That even when he judges sin and punishes, he's being faithful to his promises. It may be a negative faithfulness that we struggle to comprehend, but it is faithfulness nevertheless. And we must recognize that God is flawless in his faithfulness to all of his promises, including the good and the difficult. And so 2 Kings is a little bit of a warning to us, I think, tonight, that, that destruction and exile are the serious consequences of sin and rebellion against God. And may 2 Kings, as we read it and we see what happened to the people of Israel, that they got basically vomited out of the land. That's how the, the kind of the Hebrew describes it. As they get exiled, as they get vomited out of the land, that's what happens 
as a result and as a consequence of sin and rebellion against God. And may we learn from those who have gone before us to be quick to turn to God in repentance, to be quick to turn back to him when we sin, to be quick to trust in his savior and his provision and his grace. Because God is faithful to all of his promises. And 2 Kings is, an important theme in 2 Kings is covenant keeping. It's really important. And this is just, a, this is God keeping his covenant obligations. He's the God who gave the law. He's the God who rightly punishes lawbreakers. He's a God who is faithful to all of his promises. And even the discipling measures that he uses are sovereignly administered in a way such as to not undo his promises. And that's, that leads us into the third thing. God is gracious to his people. Although 2 Kings 24 and 25 is full of doom and gloom, it is not the end, uh, and it is the end of Judah, it is not the end of the story that God is writing. And that's good news. For in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God, if you remember, he made a promise to David that through David's offspring, there would always be, or there would be one who would always sit on the throne. That God promised David a, a king who would reign forever, a king who would reign in righteousness, a king who would reign in justice, a king who would reign in peace, and he would reign forever and ever. And so even though the human kings failed, God's promises do not fail. He's good to all of his promises, the bad ones and the good ones. And throughout the book of Kings, we, we hear, uh, well, at least in a, in a couple of places, we hear how God acts towards his people for the sake of his servant, David. And so although God's people are faithless and unfaithful, God is faithful to all of his promises. And he also continues to be gracious to his people in spite of their sin, in spite of their transgressions. Why? Because of the promises he made to David for the sake of my servant, David. And so time after time, again and again, even beyond the book of 2 Kings, God treats his people in mercy and grace in ways that they don't deserve. All for the sake of my servant, David. And God's mercy and grace to us here this evening is rooted in that same hope expressed in that kind of same way as second kings expresses it god does not treat us as our sins deserve because of the faithfulness of a son of david who is a better king than jehoiah has a better king than jehoiakim a better king than jehoiachin a better king than zedekiah a better king than josiah a better king even than solomon we have a king a son of David, a true and better David, a true and better king who, who has won for us righteousness before God, who has borne the consequences of our covenant breaking and the curses that should come upon us. So Paul will write in Galatians, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And he'll write in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that the one who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in Jesus, we have the ultimate fulfillment of all that Second Kings pointed towards. God is in control. God is good to his promises, all of them. 
God is gracious to his people. And in Jesus, we are guaranteed that the steadfast love of the Lord will never cease. His mercies will never come to an end. For all of the necessary curses for covenant breaking have been endured by another on our behalf. And they find all of, all of God's promises find their yes and amen in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening that even though we have a, <clears throat> a difficult passage before us, which basically is miserable and, and on first reading hopeless, we thank you that it reminds us that you are a God who is in control of all things, that you are a God who is always and flawlessly faithful to your promises, and you are a God who is merciful and gracious to the undeserving. And thank you that that has been our experience because of Jesus Christ. As we stand and as we sing now, receive our gratefulness and our worship and our thankfulness for your mercy and grace towards us. Amen. <clears throat>